So I've titled this a postcard from Patmos. And last week, we left John, if you remember, on the island of Patmos. And back then, of course, this wasn't some sort of sleepy um, holiday destination by any means. In fact, and Paul, or sorry, John certainly wasn't there for a relaxing break, as you've probably gathered. It, while he was there, he was enduring real hardship, real difficulties. Jo John was probably doing forced labor, most likely in the mines or, or in the quarries because of his faith in Jesus Christ. But actually, while he's there, this book is written, born out of John's profound spiritual experience while he is a prisoner on Patmos. And what he sees is a vision of Jesus. So verse 9, let's just pick it up. Chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdoms and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I heard, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were, like, were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of a rushing water. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, Father, we just Lord, bring your word, and Lord, as we read it, Father, we pray that by your Spirit, Lord, you will take it, Lord, and apply it into our hearts. Father, we pray that we find your truth. Father, we hear your voice. Father, that you would speak to us and that you would reveal yourself to us through your words, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, I wonder, I wonder when you hear the name Jesus mentioned, I wonder what image appears in your mind's eye. 
What are you beginning to think about? Is it, is it a baby in a manger or perhaps a man walking along the Sea of Galilee or, or maybe a figure on a cross? All good images, all good pictures of who Jesus was. But in this vision, John sees something of what Jesus Christ is like now, what he's like today. But this vision begins with a sound. What John heard is this. On the Lord's day, he heard a trumpet-like voice behind him. It was Jesus speaking, actually powerfully speaking to him. And as far as we know, the apostle John has not heard Jesus speak to him. He hasn't heard his voice since Jesus went back up to heaven some 60 years before this. But now, Jesus is speaking to him again. And John is commissioned by Jesus to write this book, in fact, to send it to the seven churches. A little later on in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, John will again hear another trumpet-like voice summonsing him to heaven, but this time, in response to the voice, John turns around. And what John sees is recorded for us in verses 12 to 16. He saw a vision of the glorified Christ. And this vision was so powerful, so vivid, so extraordinary. And the purpose of this vision, well, Jesus wants him to tell the churches, the believers, that he is alive, that he is in charge, that he is reigning, that he is building a kingdom, and that a day is coming when everyone, and I mean everyone, will worship him. But in Revelations 1 verse 20, it makes it very clear that this vision is not to be taken literally. It may be vivid, it may be powerful, but it's made of symbols. There's a lot of imagery going on here. So the first thing that John sees are the seven lampstands. And these seven lampstands, it tells us, represents the seven churches that will receive this book. But also in, in, in Revelation 1 verse 20, it explains how the seven stars that he holds within his hand represent the angels or perhaps the pastors of the seven churches. And God's hand is on his churches, God's hand is on his servants, and God places them where he wants them to, to shine. God is in control. God is the one who plants churches. God is the one who ordains those who will plant churches. And this imagery, of course, goes back into the Old Testament for the same way that the priests in the tabernacle would look after the lampstands. So Jesus, the great high priest, looks after his churches. And he is present with them. He's caring for them. In fact, he is ruling over them. And how amazing is it to know that Jesus, King Jesus, the awesome, the all-powerful ruler, is watching over his churches. Listen, that includes us. That includes freedom. Freedom Church is a lampstand, and the greatest high priest of all, Jesus, is caring and looking over us. That's how much He delights in us. He looks over us. He cares for us. He presents Himself among us. And it's so important that we get this. 
we realize that church is not some sort of add-on, but Jesus is passionate about church, and he is passionate about Freedom Church. It's so important that we have the, the right theology actually around church as well. And it's not that church or even church attendance will save anyone. Of course, it doesn't. Only Jesus saves but commitment to the local church is essential. In fact, I would go as far as to say that without commitment to His church, you will begin to struggle in your love for Jesus. You begin to grow cold. The reason? Jesus works through churches. This is God's way. This is God's plan of bringing hope into this world. And the local church is the bearer of God's light into this dark world. So, where do we find Jesus? Well, verse 13 tells us, in the midst of the lampstands, the churches. Where do we find the risen Christ? in the middle of gospel-centered churches. And this church may not be perfect, no church is, but it's His church. And Jesus Christ is here, and we need to be here also. But what really, really captivates John is someone like the Son of Man. There are echoes here from the Old Testament from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Listen to what Daniel said. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and led into His presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And as we look at John's vision, I hope you can, if, if possible, create in your mind's eye just a picture of Christ picture of this glorified, risen Savior and Lord over this world as we go through this. It may help to follow it in the Bibles as you're running through this. John says he is dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, priestly robes, perhaps illustrations of, of the Old Testament robes found in Exodus chapter 28 and, and verse 4, where Moses writes, or Moses speaks, these are the garments that are to be made, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban, a sash. They are to be made with, we are to make these sacred garments for my, your brother Aaron, so that they may serve me as priests. But Christ's garments are made and are much more precious, much more wonderful. They're not just some sort of priestly garment. These are the garments of those who is a priest king, the one who receives all honor, the one who is full of all authority. In fact, there is no other priest that even comes close to this great priest. His head and his hair were white like wool. Again, image that takes us back into Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His 
clothing was as white as snow. The hair on his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. And this white hair, it symbolizes his, his eternity as the ancient of days, the one who is outside of time, the one who is infinitely eternal, unchangeable in every, every way. His eyes were like blazing fire. Revelation chapter 2 verse 18 talks in a similar way. It says, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And his eyes, they see all. They see everything. Nothing will pass him. Nothing can get by him, enabling him to judge both righteously and perfectly. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And Jesus, here he stands in such sharp contrast to even the most powerful kingdoms of this world. In Daniel chapter 2 and verse 41 to 42, there it talks about powerful kingdom, the most powerful kingdom of Babylon, perhaps the most powerful kingdom that, that may existed, but its feet are likened to that of clay with a little bit of iron. Daniel 2 says, the feet and the toes are partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of the iron, even as the iron mixed with the clay. And as the toes are partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. In contrast to that, in contrast to the very best this world has got to offer is Jesus Christ with burning bronze feet, more glorious. The purity and the strength of Jesus are just incomparable. His feet of burning bronze also have this suggestion of judgment. Significant because in the tabernacle, the bronze altar was the place where fire would consume the sin offering, a picture of the Lord who comes in judgment on His churches, but also on the evil systems of this world. He alone stands in strength. He stands in victory. He stands in judgment. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Again, this resonates with the Old Testament book, Ezekiel 43, verse 2, says there, I saw the glory of God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roaring of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with His glory. And this sound, this sound of, of waters rushing perhaps creates the image of maybe a mighty waterfall, something like the Niagara Falls. If you've been there, I haven't, but I'm sure it's pretty impressive, pretty big. But something with such sheer power, something with such, such sheer strength that seems almost unstoppable. It is Christ who gathers together all the streams of revelation, and He, he is the Father's last word to man. He is the culmination of all truth. Hebrews Chapter 1, verse 1 to 3 picks up this theme. It says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoke to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made this universe. 
the Lord is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. So, he became so much superior to the angels as, his, as the name that he has inherited is superior to theirs. And listen, all the prophetic streams of the Old Testament have come together in one person, in the man, the God-man, in Christ Jesus. And he creates this mighty river of such power that it is unstoppable. In fact, nothing, nothing can stand in his way. But there's a second idea that also flows out of his mouth, so that flows and links to his voice. It says, out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. We see this again in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 15. It says, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword, which is to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He threads, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and He speaks with power and authority, and He must be heard. And the sword from His mouth, without doubt, represents the Word of God, part of the armor of God mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and He fights His enemies, and His weapon of choice, the Word of God sharper than any double-edged sword. And then finally, John sees his face, and his face was like the, sh the sun shining. Now, there's a number of images and, and, and things that, that come, and pictures come from this. Perhaps, first of all, the eternal city mentioned in Revelation chapter 21 and 23. The city does not, lead, does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its light. But also, the Lord's shining face reminds us of a prophecy again back into the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2. It says, But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will shine with healing in its rays. And this son is a, fam a familiar image of the God in the Old Testament, which speaks not only of blessing, but also of, of judgment, because the son burns as much as it blesses. But in Jesus Christ, we see light. In fact, a place where darkness just cannot exist. Darkness cannot be there. It cannot be found in His presence. In fact, it's a place of healing, where all sin where all sickness is burnt up and removed. And this vision of Christ is so totally different to the appearance of the Savior that John knew while he was here on earth. This is not a gentle Jewish carpenter. He is the risen, glorified, exalted Son of God. The power of Jesus is highlighted even further as we get into verse 18, because it tells us He holds the keys. He is the one of all authority. He is the one who is in control of every situation, every circumstance, everything that you're going through. He holds the keys. He's in charge. 
And this priest king has authority to judge all men, beginning with his own people, according to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17. For it is time for the judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey God? of God. But as John looks at Jesus, he sees Jesus perhaps more clearly than he has ever done, perhaps more clearly than anybody's ever done, at least until Jesus Christ comes back again in true majesty and glory and completeness. But I wonder, wonder, have we ever even began to think about Jesus in this particular way? Jesus was the suffering servant. He was nailed to a cross. He was buried in a tomb, but he's no longer there. And sometimes with our rightful focus on the cross, we can take our eyes off the real Jesus because he is this awesome, majestic ruler of John's vision. Listen, a Jesus like this is a Jesus that you need on your side in a hostile world, a Jesus who is worth remaining faithful to and living for. And John's response to Jesus should be no surprise confronted with the presence of the glorified Christ, he fell at the Lord's feet as though dead. Again, remember, this is the apostle who had spent three years with Jesus. He knew him as well as anybody knew him, yet the vision of the exalted Christ produces such awe and fear to Jesus' closest friends that he falls to the ground. Yet how easy is it for us to speak and sometimes even to act with perhaps undue familiarity towards God. Yet this is John, the disciple who would lean on Jesus as they ate together, the disciple who chatted with him as they shared a meal together, but now he is no longer relaxing next to Jesus or relating to him about his day as he has done so many times before this. He is face down in his presence. And Jesus presents himself to his people in majestic glory. And we need, we need to catch a fresh awareness of Christ and his glory. We need to see him as the prophet Isaiah saw him high and lifted up. And I worry sometimes that perhaps there are times when we have maybe a dangerous absence of awe and reverence in our worship. See, you will never be half-hearted about worship when you catch a glimpse of the risen, glorified Jesus. As you understand the, the exalted Christ, it will change your life. In fact, it will lead you into daily worship. As you understand the exalted Christ, it will lead you into repentance, into fear, lest you offend him. As you understand Christ, it will change your conversations from the latest car, from business, from politics, from even the referendum, from from politics, or from, from, from theology, and you will talk and become mesmerized and just captivated by him, the one who is glorious, 
who is majestic, who is holy, who is pure, who is fearful, who is splendid. He is the one who is crowned with glory, majestic in power, eternal in brilliance, radiant in energy, boundless in power, destined to be worshipped by all people and by all nations everywhere. He is our Savior, our Judge. He is Lord of all. He is King of kings. And He is worthy of our praise. But don't miss what the Lord does next. He reassures John by touching him and speaking to him, fear not. And fear not is a wonderful encouragement for anybody. So what is the right response to the real Jesus? What is the right response? Well, Jesus says that fear and terror is the wrong response, and the right response is worship. And three reasons from the mouth of Jesus why fear and terror is the wrong response and why worship is the right response. The first is this. He is the first and the last, the eternal one. He is the all-wise one, the everlasting creator of this earth. He never begins a job without finishing it. In the beginning, He created this world with the power of His words. Six days later, He declares that it's good. And what He begins, He finishes perfectly. He began the work of salvation immediately after Adam and Eve had sinned. He prepares the way to the cross through the Old Testament, through atonement, through sacrifices, teaching us that God hates sin and loves holiness and grace. And then when everything is in place at just the right time, Jesus Christ comes into this world and He dies on the cross. And as He dies, He declares, it is finished. The work of salvation was completed on the cross once and for all. Nothing more needed to be done. You simply receive the completed gift of grace. Paul puts it like this in Philippians 1 verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He saves and he saves fully and completely. So as believers, you have been forgiven and renewed, and it's all and only because of His grace. And you can live in confidence because of the full, completed salvation. So how do we respond to such a thing? Do we respond in terror? No. We worship Him. Do we respond by wasting our time worrying about past, on, about past forgiven sins? No. They're dealt with. They are completed. Rather, we spend our time in worship and adoration of Him. The second reason why terror is wrong and why worship is right, He was dead. 
As John looks at Jesus in fear and terror, his mind just must have flooded back to all of his sins, his unworthiness, his, his evilness, his guilt. And then, and then he hears Jesus say, I was dead. And to all the sins that you have repented of, Jesus says, I was dead. I died for those sins, and you have been forgiven. To all the punishment that you have deserved, Jesus said, I was dead. I have dealt with that punishment. To all the guilt, to all the unworthiness that you feel, I was dead. I died to remove all of that guilt, and you are now righteous, so you stand and you worship. Surely you stand and worship me because I was dead. Jesus died that you might live, and this removes all fear, and surely, surely it leads us to a place of worship of Him. The third reason why terror is wrong and why worship is right. He is alive forevermore. The glorious resurrected Jesus, the one that John, the disciple, knew and loved 60 years before this, now terrified him, but he shouldn't have. Jesus said, I am alive. Tell the churches, I'm alive death was temporary, Jesus is alive, and He reigns, and He is the one who will be worshipped forevermore. And this description of Jesus by John is perhaps one of the most wonderful and breathtaking um, descriptions that you will, will ever read. But He did not just come back to life. He is alive. He didn't just come back to life. He gives life eternal life. He takes spiritually dead men and women and He breathes spiritual life into them. He takes cold, apathetic Christians, and He revives them. And Jesus is the resurrected Savior and Lord and King above every king. And really, seeing Him for for who He truly is should change our hearts. It should draw us into a place of complete and just utter surrender and worship and adoration and praise of Him. But actually, the truth is, if you were to see Jesus and you were to stand in His presence as John did, you would fall in terror probably exactly like John. I don't think you could stand it, nor could I. Because Jesus is more glorious than you realize. He is more powerful than you understand. He is more magnificent than I think that our minds could possibly ever begin to comprehend. Yet, we settle for a distant, comfortable Jesus. But Jesus is not comfortable, and He is not safe, but He is good. He is good beyond measure. And so often, we are happy to love Him as long as He does not expect too much back from us. But Jesus, the real Jesus, expects more. He expects so much more. He expects your whole life. He expects your full love. He expects your sacrificial worship. As Anna said, He expects complete surrender. 
to Him. To give all of our lives. He will not settle for anything. So how do you respond to such a great king? How do you respond to the one who is majestic and awesome and glorious without compare? The right response is worship. It's surrender. It's to give everything over to Him. Let's pray. Father, we stand in Your presence without sometimes even fully grasping who we stand before. And Lord, we declare that You are good, that You are loving, that You are merciful, but also, Lord, that You are powerful. You're a judge. You're the one who is in control of everything and every situation. And Lord, we, we come to you. And Father, just acknowledge that we, we need you. But Lord, sometimes we are also scared of you. But Father, we thank you that we don't need to be. So Lord, just teach us by your Spirit today. Lift our gaze develop our understanding. Lord, help us to come closer, to come nearer, to come further into Your presence by Your Spirit. Lead us, we pray. Lord, thank You that You're gracious with us. Thank You that You reach out with Your right hand and You touch us, and You welcome us, and You speak the words over us. Don't be afraid. I am with You. I am always with you. So, Father, we love you, and we exalt you, and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.